you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 317 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the adjustable regulator chip episode of the SLS Cast because it turns out that there is one such adjustable regulator chip used in regulating electric voltage called the LM317, and there is an actual shorthand for said LM317, and that shorthand is simply 317. And with that wonderful little bit of shorthand adjustable regulator chip knowledge, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee, Tim. The actual Tim and Matt are together this week recording this episode, and there will not be any audio issues. (laughs) Fingers crossed. (laughs) Hopefully it worked out for the best. I don't know, it's, it was one of those things last week where it seemed like my second recording turned out a lot better than my first recording, so it worked out in some weird way. Hey, well, as long as it all works out in the end, that's what we are here for. Something like that. Yeah, I that don't know. belongs in a diarrhea yeah. commercial. <laughs> a heartwarming Verizon commercial or something like that. You hearing about all that flack poor Verizon's getting from the Super Bowl commercial? I actually did not watch any of the Super Bowl. Me neither. I had to work for the entirety of the Super Bowl, actually. And I did not watch anything. Um, there was such a huge fervor over the lack of SpongeBob during the halftime show that I did ultimately watch the halftime show. If you are, if you are like me, or, or at least like Tim and formerly like me and have not watched anything, just keep yourself in the dark. The halftime show is not worth watching. SpongeBob. Where'd you get SpongeBob from? Okay, so one of is that the... like Adam Levine's stage name, his new stage name? <laughs> no. Spongy Levine. Apparently, one of the groups. Um, oh, good lord, Scott Cash or something like that. Hang on, let me let me let's see here. Super Bowl. Half time. Well, I'm going to scroll down all the way here to the end because i got to look at all these different shows. Okay. Travis Scott. So apparently one of Travis Scott's singles um, has been kind of memed into they've incorporated certain aspects of SpongeBob SquarePants and their... Um, song i don't know when when squidward has the halftime show in one of the in one of the episodes and the the band plays a particular song and and i can't even think of the name of the song that they play the um everybody was like thinking they were going to recreate this particular song so let's see here sponge Bob, oh, Sweet Victory. So they're supposed to sing Sweet Victory. And basically, it kind of got teased in such a fashion that everyone thought they were going to be doing a tribute of some form or fashion to Sweet Victory. And instead, all they got was the lead up to Sweet Victory, and it instead turned into this Travis Scott guy, right? Is that, did I say that right? I can't remember sure. what his name was anymore. Leading into his performance. And it didn't play off very well, even watching it. Like, I, I was not invested in this thing in any way, shape, or form. And I was like, kind of like, oh, well, that didn't kind of work as well as I think they were hoping it would. But everybody was really pissed off about it. Yeah, it just wasn't a good performance. I don't know how well to say that in the other way it just wasn't just wasn't good because it was a very low scoring super bowl and not a very exciting super bowl that such was also the halftime show just an ill-fated super bowl if you will right well i must say something when everybody online was posting the video from when prince played the super bowl halftime show in the rain you know, people would rather right. be out in the rain watching Prince play yes. than watching that somebody like That time that Maroon the Super 5. Bowl opened for Prince. Yes, I remember that. Right. 
That right. was a that was a very good one. And honestly, I think it, there's a big, huge debate going back and forth as to who was the true um, champ of all halftime shows. And it pretty much kind of gets boiled down into two camps. It's either Michael Jackson from 1993 or Prince from 2009. I think it's I think it was nine. It was either seven or nine. I can't remember. And I think that it would. I think it's fair to give them their own century. Each one gets their own century because as it stands right now, I don't see anyone beating out Prince in the 21st century. Although you could argue that Lady Gaga and or Katy Perry could give him a run for his money in terms of theatricality. In terms of theatricality, sheer theatricality, I think that those two women could give him a run for his money. I mean, I'll take Lady Gaga, but... Katy Perry. I don't think and, that they I don't think that they would beat beat him, but I'm just saying I think they give him a run for his money. And then I think the 20th century Super Bowl appearances belong to Michael Jackson. He was definitely the best of the 20th century. Now, I will say <laughs> that if you ever get a chance, you have to look at the 1992 Super Bowl halftime show. Um, <laughs> I actually, I could not bring myself to watch the second half. It's so terrible, but <laughs> I did manage to watch the first half. <laughs> it's called Winter Magic. <laughs> and it takes place in Minnesota. <laughs> it is the most terrible white bread. I mean, literally white, Wonder Bread, everything you can think of that is stereotypical of white people in the latter half of the 20th century (laughs) that they think is entertainment. (laughs) And I think this is why Michael Jackson takes the cake, because we go from Winter Magic, (laughs) which is... It's got a rap version. It's <laughs> it's got the worst <laughs> rap version of Frosty the Snowman you've ever heard. And please bear in mind that this is happening at the end of January. So Christmas is long gone. But they're still clinging to winter magic, as it were. And then they go from that to, I think it was in Miami. No, no, it was, uh, it, it was the Rose Bowl. So it was, it was in California. And Michael Jackson doing, you know, right there at the height of his dangerous tour and everything. And it's like a, it's, it is a true complete shift. They, they never go back to the old style, to that winter magic stuff. But man, let me tell you, it was something else. Well, that was very non fascinating (laughs) historical leaps into the world of professional. American football. I don't know. I kind of checked out of anything Super Bowl the past couple years. The last thing I wanted to do was go into a bar or restaurant and overspend on food or drink. And, you know, I instead just watched Johnny English Strikes Again. I think I came out on top with watching anything. At least that's what I'm going to tell myself. Have you watched any of the Johnny English movies? I tried to watch the first one. There's only the two, right? There's there's, there's only three. Two. Oh, dear God. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. They've all come out within like eight years of each other. But I promise you the third one, it's funny. It's good. It reminds me of like classic Rowan Atkinson, just the goofs, the stunts. You know, it, it's really funny. There's, It's more than just dumb jokes and pratfalls. They're well executed and well conceived dumb jokes and pratfalls. I'm, you never know. I might come across a day when I'm bored and... Have an itch and go, oh, look, there's that. Watch it with the kid. It's very kid-friendly. Oh, that might be something. I mean, I got the kids into Mr. Bean, so I suppose I suppose we could get some Johnny English action happening. But at any rate, so shall we go ahead and do some news? We must. Then let's, folks. Here we go. It's the news. <laughs> Right, 
ahead and quick point of order. So next week, uh, we are not going to have a new segment because we've got a bunch of movies we need to cover to wrap up our, uh, early, our, our early Oscar coverage. And then the following week, so episode 318 is not going to have any news. And then episode 319 is actually not going to have any movies because we are going to dedicate the entire episode to our Oscar predictions. So we're going to go through and finally get all those knocked out in one shot. We're not going to split it in half. No, no, we're going to do it all in one go. And this way it'll just be our whole special episode and we'll go from there. So... With those announcements out of the way and some housekeeping done, from Collider.com by way of Adam Chitwood, Netflix to acquire Zac Efron Ted Bundy movie, Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil, and Vile. That's right, folks. The 2019 Sundance Film Festival may be complete, but the acquisitions aren't yet over. One of the hottest sales titles was surely Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil, and Vile, which stars Zac Efron as Ted Bundy. The film premiered to fairly positive reviews, although some critics had their reservations about the value of such a story being told. Now, THR reports that Netflix is in talks to acquire the U.S. rights and some international rights to distribute the film for an impressive $9 million, beating out competitors like Lionsgate and STX Films. Extremely Wicked, uh, Shockingly Evil and Vile takes the unique track of telling the Ted Bundy story from the point of view of his longtime girlfriend, Elizabeth Klepfer, played in the film by Lily Collins. Instead of sensationalizing Bundy's crimes, the fictional account aims to show how one could feel duped by a loved one and why reconciling the reported crimes with the man that Liz knew and loved was so difficult. Indeed, the film doesn't show Bundy committing the crimes. Instead, what we hear about uh, his awful deeds is the way Liz did, and by the same token, we also hear Ted's seemingly sincere pleas of innocence. The film aims to reconcile why it took so long for Liz to admit Ted's guilt, and in doing so, provides a unique perspective on the notorious serial killer. Efron is pitched perfect in the role, and while the film falls a bit short of impactfully sticking its landing, it remains an engrossing watch, and paired with the ten but Ted Bundy tapes, it offers a more complete picture of Bundy's crimes. And we're going to end that there. And again, those opinions of the film itself come from Adam Chitwood, of course. Uh, that's probably about the, about half the article. So I definitely would encourage you to read the other half of said article. Again, from Collider.com by way of Adam Chitwood, Netflix to acquire Zac Efron, Ted Bundy movie, extremely wicked, shockingly evil, and vile. Now, Tim, before we get to you, I did actually watch the Ted Bundy tapes um, of over the, not last weekend, but I guess the weekend before. That's the Netflix miniseries, right? Yes, documentary. It is a documentary right. series on him. And this, the guy who is actually behind that documentary is the same guy who is behind this film. Oh, and so that's kind of cool that Netflix is definitely trying to, uh, I guess, hedge in on the whole Ted Bundy thing. And I, w I don't know, what do you think about the idea that people, there shouldn't be movies about serial killers like Ted Bundy because it might inadvertently glorify, uh, what, who he was and what he, what he stood for and what he did. And moreover, the idea that Ted Bundy himself would love something like this to know, would love to know that something like this happened. Myself, um, I disagree with that tack because I think it is important to understand what goes into creating a monster and understanding that monsters can have all sorts of different faces. Sure. Yeah. You know, but I don't know. What are your thoughts on this, sir? It all comes down to how the movie is made, what it focuses on, how they portray the events, if it's done tastefully, not tastefully, it all just depends on the film and its content, I suppose. But what's interesting about these serial killers and murders and at least the story behind the serial killers in these murders is not necessarily, the most interesting thing isn't necessarily the serial killers themselves, but it's the people that are around them. What's so great about the Zodiac movie is how that investigation and how that murderer, how that serial killer inadvertently impacted the investigators, the police, you know, all these other people that the movie focuses on. 
This sounds like an interesting tactic with this Ted Bundy film that's coming out. It's obviously not focusing solely on his wife, but it sounds like she is a she plays a major supporting role. And if in fact that they do focus on her relationship with him, and maybe there was a little obviously there was some brainwashing there, some living in denial on her end. That could be very interesting. And as you said, they don't focus on any of the killings, like showing you any of the killings. That's kind of interesting as well. There's a humanity aspect of films like this that needs to be on the film's conscious. In order to pull something off that isn't crass or that is in poor taste. Uh, that Lars von Trier movie, The House That Jack Built, with uh, Matt Dillon and... I can't believe I'm blanking on her name. The Bride from Kill Bill. Uma Thurman. Yeah, Uma Thurman is in it. And that film, there's some character work there. I haven't seen it. I'm just going off of very detailed reviews that I have read. I haven't seen it yet. But the a big complaint about that movie, and like a lot of other Lars von Trier movies, is how he sets out to make very divisive films for the sake of being divisive. It's like he purposely wants to upset the status quo within his own movies. So he focuses on the killings. He focuses on not only killing uh, uh, women, but like children as well. When it comes down to it, when you watch a movie about a serial killer, it's more effective understanding the monster, trying to understand the monster pulling the trigger, other than the things that the monster directly afflicts upon its victims or whatever, you know, it, it's there's a lot more interesting things when you don't see the actions play out. Again, just with this extremely wicked, some whatever movie, the Zac Efron movie, because of that, I think it might be in good taste. So I'm interested. Fair enough, man. All right. What do you got for us? All right, I'm going to do two pieces. Uh, both of them are from the HollywoodReporter.com. First up, an RIP, Julie Adams, Damsel in Distress in Creature from the Black Lagoon Dies at 92, written by Chris Koselik, or Koseluk, K-O-S-E-L-U-K, published on February 3rd. And it says this. A leading lady at Universal in the 1950s, she had memorable stents on Perry Mason and Murder, She Wrote, and played Jimmy Stewart's wife on TV. Julie Adams, with the cascading curls best remembered as the damsel in distress in the 1954 horror classic Creature from the Black Lagoon, has died. She was 92. Adams died early Sunday morning in Los Angeles, her son Mitchell Danton, a TV editor, told The Hollywood Reporter. In more than six decades in film and on television, Adams also starred with Donald O'Connor in Francis Joins the WACs, played opposite Elvis Presley in Tickle Me from 1965, and appeared with Dennis Hopper in The Last Movie in 1971, and with John Wayne in McHugh from 1974. Fans of Murder, She Wrote know Adams for playing the eccentric realtor Eve Simpson on the long-running Angela Lansbury starer, and in the early 1970s, she portrayed Jimmy Stewart's wife in the legendary actor's first foray into starring on his own series. As a publicity stunt, Universal Studios once declared her legs, quote, the most perfectly symmetrical in the world, end quote, and insured them for $125,000. And in the case of the deadly verdict, a 1963 episode of Perry Mason, Adams's character had the notable distinction of being one of the lawyer's few clients to be found guilty. A standout in a series of quickly made westerns at Paramount, Adams, then billed as Julia Adams, blossomed after she signed with Universal and was showcased in support of such stars as Arthur Kennedy in Bright Victory from 1951, Stewart in Anthony Mann's Bend in the River from 1952, William Powell in The Treasure of Lost Canyon from 1952, Rock Hudson in The Lawless Breed from 1953, and Van Helfen in Wings of the Hawk 
from 1953 as well. Then the actress was offered the role that assured her a place in monster movie history, seeking to cash in on the growing popularity of 3D films, Universal began production on Creature from the Black Lagoon. Jack Arnold, who had just done It Came from Outer Space, was tapped to direct. And no quotes there, it does go on for a bit more. Again, R.I.P. Julie Adams, damsel in distress in Creature from the Black Lagoon, dies at 92 via thehollywoodreporter.com. Second article here from The Hollywood Reporter, published on January 30th. James Gunn in talks to direct Suicide Squad sequel. And it says this. The move is not entirely unexpected, as Gunn was already writing the script for the follow-up, which Warner Brothers just slotted for an August 2021 release. Gunn, who was fired from helming the third installment in his Guardians of the Galaxy franchise, is in negotiations to direct the second Suicide Squad film, the follow-up to the Warner Brothers 2016 hit that featured DC Comics' anti-heroes as the leads. The deal-making does, however, solidify that the new Suicide Squad film will be his next directorial effort. Disney fired Gunn from his Marvel franchise in July after old tweets from 2008 and 2009 resurfaced, in which he made insensitive and controversial jokes. The pick has the title of The Suicide Squad and is not being labeled a direct sequel, but as a relaunch. The 2016 original movie featured the characters Deadshot, Harley Quinn, the Joker, Captain Boomerang, and Killer Croc, who are forced into the service of the government in exchange for lighter prison sentences. Sources say that Gunn's focus is to take the franchise in a new direction with a mostly all-new cast of characters and actors. Sources also say that the project is also very much rooted in Gunn's vibe, as seen in the Guardians movies. And all quotes there, the article does go on for a little bit more. Again, both of these articles were from thehollywoodreporter.com, and I just read from James Gunn in talks to direct Suicide Squad sequel exclusive. Matthew, what do you think about James Gunn hopping over to DC and taking on Suicide Squad? Well, I think that uh, whoever sacrificed whatever it was over at DC and Warner Brothers <laughs> got a big pay raise. <laughs> because that's the only thing I can figure is like they 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 made some kind of deal with Satan and all of a sudden Satan causes those tweets to resurface gun gets fired and is immediately picked up by DC <laughs> because this is about the best damn thing that you could have ever hoped to have happened for DC and you and you have to know you have to know that Gun is going to come out swinging on this. You're not going to say Gun's not going to come out with guns blazing? No. Oh. Too obvious. I mean, but seriously, I, I, I think this is a great move for him I, because he has, he literally has nothing to lose and everything to gain. If it completely flops, if the new Suicide Squad completely flops, they won't blame Gun. They'll go, even he couldn't save this shit show that is the DCEU, right? And if he does manage to create a hit, everybody's going to go, "You Marvel, you stupid, unbelievably idiotic pieces of beep, 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 right? You know, everybody who's screaming all expletives deleted. Look what you've done. You've now created a competitive juggernaut by releasing James Gunn. So this is going to be great. I can't wait to see it. I mean, you have to remember, this is the guy who gave us Guardians of the Galaxy. This is the reason. And again, it was the same thing. You're going to take a fifth generation Marvel property in the third or fourth iteration of said property that nobody knows anything about or has ever heard of using, you know, Andy from Parks and Rec and you're going to make a billion dollars doing that? No. The hell you say. And this is exactly what he did. So 
Why can't he do it with Suicide Squad? I'm, I am so excited. I have, uh, yeah, I cannot wait. It's going to be interesting. I mean, it's pretty much just a darker and maybe more mean-spirited Guardians of the Galaxy. Oh, I think but... we're going to get I think we're going to get a version of Gun that we haven't been able to get as of yet. I think we're going to be able to get something a lot darker, a lot more unbridled, and um I think we're going to be able to get something that is tapping into the the spirit of the guy that gave us those very ill-advised tweets from so long ago. Um, but that same guy who gave us those ill-advised tweets all those years ago was also producing uh, some really interesting horror stuff, but also gave us the um, the real-life porn stuff where he actually would film with porn stars in scenarios, but the punchline is always that he doesn't understand that it's porn. And the one that I've always seen is when he's in an auto body shop and the girl's like, oh, so you need to tweak my engine? And then he's like, oh, yeah, so we're just going to use this, you know, I've got this, uh, you know, you, you got your V6s out of whack and we're going to take care of it or whatever. And she just keeps feeding into a porn setup and then he keeps landing it as a straight man. And then it's it's actually quite funny. So um, I think we'll get to see more of that stuff. It'll was this good. like a series of like short videos? Or I want to say he did, he did or... like two or three of them, but they're pretty funny. Just uh, you know, you can look up uh, James Gun Porn. Yeah, James Gun Porn Auto Shop uh, sh- should be able to should be able to find it. It's pretty funny. What you got next? Well, my last piece of news is from therap.com by way of Steve Pond and Jeremy Fuster. Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse sweeps with seven wins at Annie Awards. That's right, folks. Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse has been named the best animated feature of 2018 at the 46th Annual Annie Awards, sweeping all seven categories in which it was nominated and giving the film a prize that has predicted the Oscar animated feature winner more than 70% of the time. <laughs> Insert Anchorman 2 gif here. 60% of the time works every time. <laughs> the awards were handed out at Royce Hall on the UCLA campus on Saturday night. Uh, this article is dated uh, from February 2nd. However, it was updated at February 3rd. We're, of course, recording on the February 4th. So basically just the other night as we recorded. Uh, by the Los Angeles branch of the International Animated Film Association, ASIFA Hollywood. Uh, in addition to winning Best Animated Feature, Spider-Man picked up awards for its directing, writing, character animation, character design, production design, and editorial. Uh, Incredibles 2 came into the show with the most nominations, uh, 11 but only won two, while Ralph Breaks the Internet had 10 nominations and received one. Uh, it says... That the seven wins for Spider-Man fell short of the record 11 Annie wins for Pixar's Coco last year, but they were a strong indication of the momentum that the film had acquired since its release in December. And of course, it is the first film from Sony Pictures Animation to win the top award at the Annie's, which over the years has been dominated by Disney Pixar and DreamWorks Animation. Eight wins for Disney, nine for Pixar, and four for DreamWorks. Um... And I'm going to stop there because that's, again, that's about the first third of the article and really all I wanted to focus on. But absolutely, the rest of the article is great as well and actually breaks down all the categories and their winners. So I highly recommend you go and check that out again over at therap.com by way of Steve Pond and Jeremy Fuster. Uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse sweeps with seven wins at any awards. Tim, do you think that this bodes well? For Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. I certainly think it does. Sure. I, yeah. I know, I know we still only have a little bit of time left to check the, to check off our last remaining, uh, animated film. I don't know that we will be as successful as we would like to be in that regard. But given the field, I would be super stoked if Spider-Man wins this year. Are, are you hoping it does as well? I hope so too. I don't think it's a perfect movie. But it's such an inventive movie. I've never seen anything quite like it before. All the other movies are either, I mean, Incredibles 2, sequel, Ralph Breaks the Internet is a sequel. 
you know, we've seen that before. Isle of Dogs is another Wes Anderson movie. Good movie and incredibly well made, but it's a Wes Anderson movie and it wasn't that fantastic of a film either. Spider-Verse has a very good chance to win the best animated Oscar for sure. All right, well, that does bring me to the end of my news. Bring us home on the news front, sir. My last piece of news is brought to us by SlashFilm.com. Peter Jackson to direct the Beatles documentary focusing on the recording of Let It Be, written by Ethan Anderton, and it was published on January 30th. And it says this... Today marks the 50th anniversary of the Beatles' final live performance together on the roof of the band's headquarters at Apple Corps at 3 Saville Row in London. So it's only appropriate that today also brings news that the Lord of the Rings director Peter Jackson is working on a new documentary about the Beatles. There have been plenty of documentaries about the British rock sensation known as the Fab Four, with Ron Howard most recently tackling the historic band in a documentary called Eight Days a Week. However, this one will be very different because it will focus on the recording of the band's final album, Let It Be, and it will feature tons of never-before-seen footage cut from 55 hours of the band working in the studio, something that has rarely been seen on film by the public. Let It Be was not the final album that the Beatles recorded together, though it was the last album to be released by the band. The album was recorded in January of 1969, but Abbey Road was recorded later that year. However, the band continued to work on Let It Be, which wouldn't be released until 1970, after Abbey Road was released in 1969. The acknowledgement of which album is actually the Beatles' final album is a hot topic of debate among fans. Whether or not you regard Let It Be as the true final album of the Beatles, this documentary will be something to behold. Rarely have fans been provided an opportunity to see Paul McCartney, John Lennon, George Harrison, and Ringo Starr working together in the studio, and this documentary will provide endless footage of that. Peter Jackson says via Deadline, quote, the 55 hours of never-before-seen footage and 140 hours of audio made available to us ensures this movie will be the ultimate fly-on-the-wall experience that Beatles fans have long dreamed about. It's like a time machine transports us back to 1969, and we get to sit in the studio watching these four make great music together. Together. And all quotes there. Again, that was via slashfilm.com. Peter Jackson to direct the Beatles documentary, focusing on the recording of Let It Be, and it was published again on January 30th. I find this very interesting. I've been beetled out for eight years now, but this definitely intrigues me. I think it intrigues me more after seeing Peter Jackson's glorious World War I documentary, They Shall Not Grow Old. I got to see it in AMC Prime in 3D, Real D 3D, and it was an absolute delight. And seeing what he was able to pull off with 100-year-old silent footage, there's no doubt in my mind that this will be something incredibly special, you know, to those who are longtime fans of the Beatles, even people that are just simply interested in the Beatles. I think this will be something interesting, um, though I have a feeling he's probably not going to be going all in as he did for They Shall Not Grow Old, given how he has recordings. <laughs> he has two of the original members still alive, color reference material, and he also has the actual audio. So there you go. Matt, what do you think about this, if anything? I, I think I would see it mainly just because it would be interesting to see his particular take on it. Um, dis I mean, despite any level of fandom that he has, his talents as a director will shape the documentary in a vastly different way than we probably would even think of a documentary being made, especially now that we've seen what he's capable of with um, They Shall Not Grow Old, um, Asterix, because I will have seen this movie by the time the episode comes out, but I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> um, but uh, so I'm interested to see his take on it. But in terms of 
do we really need another Beatles documentary? Eh, I don't know. Uh, so I'm, I'm still interested in the idea of it, mainly because of the tack that it's taking and it's Peter Jackson doing it. Uh, beyond that, hey, go for it. <laughs> Raw. Hoorah. Exactly. And that's my news. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of the news. Again, next week we will not have news because we've got uh, to get through the rest of the movies uh, that we want to cover for the Oscars. And then, of course, again, uh, as we are heading into the movies uh, for episode 319, um, just to keep that heads up, action going, we're not going to have news or movies. We will be doing all of the Oscar predictions and give you a supersized prediction episode instead. All right. And so I guess we are now off to the movies. Are we not, sir? We are indeed. Then here we go, folks. It's the movie. We <laughs> And this week's movies are Free Solo, Cold War, and Shoplifters. Where do you want to start, sir? Because I wasn't able to see Shoplifters, let's jump into Shoplifters. All right, so we got a 2018 Japanese drama film. This is directed, written, and edited by Hirokazu Koreeda. And it stars Lily Frankie, Sakura Ando, and basically revolves around a family and i use the word family in air quotes here i know you can't see it because it's an audio podcast um and how they basically use shoplifting as the primary means of feeding their family and what you have is a group of different people who You've got a guy, he's a day laborer, uh, named Osamu, uh, he's got his wife named, uh, Nobuyo, uh, there's Aki, and, uh, Shota, and then finally Hatsui. Now, Nobuyo is the wife of Osamu, but Aki isn't really, like, a true member of the family per se. Shota also, kind of an interesting um, member of the family, if you will. And Hatsui is a woman who is uh, an old woman who lives on a pension. And it's they, they all have different kinds of jobs and functions and stuff, right? Hatsui it owns the home that they live in. And again, everybody's trying to survive on the pension. Uh, Aki works at a hostess club, which is basically a companionship club and it is not a brothel by any stretch of imagination but it is where you know rich guys go to really get someone to hang out with them and talk with them and do all this kind of stuff and just kind of make them feel special but you just kind of leave it at the club and then um Nabuyo works for a laundry. Osamo's a day laborer, but none of what they do really is able to get them beyond day to day. And so they use a system. Generally, Osamo and Shota use a system to communicate with each other and they shoplift. And this is how they feed their family. And then, of course, through a mixture of, I don't know, just bad luck unplanned disaster and i don't know i guess a a, a, a a touch a dash a smattering of hubris you're watching these people's world such as it is fall apart and the movie really kind of touches on all the different kinds of ideas that go into making a family and also surviving in a society. When you think of Western society, you think first world, you think that sure people live in poverty, but it's never really you unless it really is you. And it starts to make you ask those questions of, well, how bad are these people really? And that's what makes this movie so interesting and so compelling and worth exploring. Because this is not a happy movie. And despite its subject matter, it's not, it's not a movie that is laced with despair. 
And so it, I think, shines in a way that other movies will be covering and have covered. And actually, one of the movies we're going to talk about this evening uh, on this episode can can actually give you a look into something that is a terrible situation, but still shine a light on the humanity of it all. Um, and that is what makes the movie so strong for me. I think that it's well-acted, well-rounded. The only thing that I would say is kind of lingers a little bit in certain points. And I think that the complexity involved, especially in a little bit of the latter aspects of it, tends to make it more melodramatic than truly dramatic. And so I kind of pull it back a little bit on that. But it's still an outstanding movie. I absolutely highly recommend the film uh, for all the reasons I've listed. And honestly, even if uh, even if I don't particularly care for a bit of melodrama, you might. Uh, give this a 4.5 out of 5, and I hope you will enjoy it as much as I have. That's all I have to say about that. 4.5, that's good, man. I'm looking forward to seeing it now. I mean, I was looking forward to seeing it beforehand, but cool. <laughs> Outstanding. All right, well, then where do we want to turn, sir? We still have Cold War and Free Solo to cover. How about your favorite movie of the week, Cold War? All right, we got a 2018 historical period drama film. This is uh, directed by Powell Powellkowski. And again, you're noticing that we've got a lot of... Uh, foreign names being read here. That's because these two movies are from the uh, nominations for Best Foreign Film. So head on over to YouTube or your favorite video site to check out the trailers because they are oftentimes captioned for you. This is a film about star-crossed lovers, if you will, from the ruins of post-war Poland, Wiktor and Zula. They fall in love with each other, but they are having to deal with not just the fallout from the war, but the way that they are dealing with themselves in this new world and the way they express themselves through their art, which of course is music. And they have different viewpoints on all of it. And yet they still at their core have this intense love affair with one another. Uh, and of course they follow this relationship. The movie follows this relationship over its course uh, of the film. And as it runs its course as a relationship, now, I will say that there are two really cool things about this movie. One, I think it does a, I think the movie itself does a true service in demonstrating how two people can truly be in love with one another and absolutely be terrible for one another. They, it, it's, it honestly, it was very introspective for me and reminded me a lot of my first marriage. I, uh, there were some very good things about my first wife and I that I, I mean, you can just see the spark and the flame and the passion. And, and there was so much of that that drew us almost like an animal magnetism. And yet, our backgrounds, the way we were raised, our ideas of family, the way we pursued the things that matter to us, our dreams, none of those things truly meshed. And yet you feel because this attraction and this love is so strong that you can work through these things. And a lot of times you can't. Now, that's not to say it's impossible, but a lot of times you can't. And ultimately, as is evidenced by the fact that I'm remarried with more children, and all this kind of stuff, it didn't work out for me and her either. And I think that this film really demonstrates that in a, in just a purely cinematic context that is really neat to grasp. I also think that the aspect ratio of the film, the cinematography of the film was also done in such a manner to make you feel that claustrophobic nature. And I think it was a very strong choice for the film. And I like that aspect. The black and white, eh. Eh, okay, nice touch, but not necessarily necessary. Um, 
The thing that kills me for this film, and I hate even saying this in a non-spoiler review because it does technically kind of spoil a little bit of it, so sorry, but this is as much as I'll give away. I do not like the ending. The ending of this film feels completely tacked on and done as a way to lazily write something for it to have whatever meaning you think it should have to tack onto this art piece, if you will. But the movie didn't need that. And it really, you know, irritated me more than anything. Um, up to that ending though, I think it's, I think it's got a lot of things going for it. And again, that cinematography as well and the, and the style of the cinema that brings this story of these two people, um, together and apart is still worth watching. So I do give this one a four out of five, but it literally loses the entire star. Um, and I was heavily debating more than just the one star, but definitely one star off. Four out of five, just because that ending. So Cold War, four out of five. What do you got there, Tim? I, too, give it a four out of five. The Polish film Cold War is one of this year's awards season darlings. There is a lot of hype <laughs> going into this one. People love it. And with a runtime of 89 minutes, which includes the credits... The dramatic epic quickly covers a lot of character development over the runtime. The timeline within the film spans uh, two decades. And within that timeline, so 89 minutes, or I should say 85 minutes, cutting out the credits, 85 minutes to cover 20 years of a relationship. So within that timeline, the two lovers who are kept from one another by the politics of the time are determined to be lovers. And there's one question that a viewer should never ask after a film like this. When a film like this is over, you should never ask, was it all worth it? Now, not necessarily was it all worth it for me to, you know, spend 90 minutes in the theater to watch the movie, but was it worth it for these characters? The flick is shot beautifully, definitely worthy of its cinematography Oscar nomination. The cinematographer is Łukasz Zoll. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that properly. I'm Polish, and I probably should know how to pronounce this name, but Łukasz Zoll, he's nominated. Beautiful, beautiful cinematography. I like the black and white, the aspect ratio, 131 aspect ratio, mainly because it just added, it was an, an aesthetic to the film. It made it feel a little bit old-fashioned, and, and I think they were more easily able to fool the audience with some of that movie magic trickery using that aspect ratio in black and white. So it's worthy of its cinematography Oscar nomination. The performances are top-notch as well, but did I actually feel for these two people? Not completely. Cold War is a beautiful but all-too-easy flick to watch. Maybe it would have benefited with a much longer runtime, I don't know. I mean, there just wasn't enough meat in the scenes preceding each time jump to imply that these characters would be better off dead than not being together. It's a good movie, but it just doesn't add up completely. Can't buy into it when not enough time was taken to develop these characters and these emotions in a more natural and not rushed way. Because a lot of people, they look at silence ha having more of an impact than people talking. But it all depends on how all of that is blocked out. And unfortunately, this movie did not succeed in doing that. Four out of five, still good. Right on. All right, well, then that leaves us with Free Solo. Does it feel different to be up there without a rope? It's obviously like much higher consequence. People who know a little bit about climbing, they're like, oh, he's totally safe. And then people who really know exactly what he's doing are freaked out. I've thought about El Cap like for years and every year I'm like, that's really scary. 
I'll never be content unless I at least put in the effort. El Cap is the most impressive wall on Earth. It's 3,200 feet of sheer granite. It's the center of the rock climbing universe. Obviously, I get interview questions about it all the time. Oh, would you like to do that? You're like, yes, for sure. So you're a girlfriend now, I heard. It's awesome. <laughs> Pretty much makes life better in every way. It's really hard for me to grasp why he wants this. But if he doesn't do this stuff, he'd regret it. Everybody who has made free soloing a big part of their life is dead now. I haven't been injured in like seven years. I suddenly start getting injured all the time. What if something happens? Oh. What if I don't see him again? I could just walk away, but it's like, I don't want to. I've always been conflicted about shooting a film about free soloing just because it's so dangerous. It's hard to not imagine your friend falling through the frame to his death. I think when he's free soloing, that's when he feels the most alive, most everything. How can you even think about taking that away from somebody? No mistakes tomorrow. Starting to get kind of psyched. If you're pushing the edge, eventually you find the edge. I can't believe you guys are actually gonna watch. Hey Jimmy, do you copy? Just started climbing. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. It's a 2018 American documentary film directed by Elizabeth Chai Versehel and Jimmy Chin. Now, this is not a documentary about getting Solo Han Solo out of jail or getting the Solo movie made or something like that. No, 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 no. Free Solo is when you rock climb with nothing but your hands and your feet. All right, you're not using any kind of ropes, no tools, no anything. Uh, you know, you get a little powder, of course. You know, you gotta keep them hands dry. But uh, you're literally just scaling something. And in this particular instance, they are profiling rock climber Alex Honnold and his, uh, you know, his, his quest, if you will, to free solo El Capitan back in June of 2017. Um, and I mean that's. That that is the movie in a nutshell. It it does a very good job. I highly recommend this movie in IMAX if you can. IMAX is the way to see this movie. It's kind of like enough to oh, what was the movie about the 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 tightrope guy, Tim? Um, 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 um. Twin Towers. Yeah, French dude. Uh, Man on Wire. Yeah, Man on Wire. So very reminiscent of that in the IMAX. Uh, definitely will make you kind of have your belly button go, right? It's going to do that a couple of times. Beyond that, the movie really does bring an interesting way of humanizing and helping you understand to get in the head of someone that wants to climb 3,000 feet just because it's there. I mean, there's no, there, there, there's nothing in it other than being able to say that you did it. Now, in fairness to the degree of difficulty of the climb, because it is basically just sheer granite, it is loosely considered to be like one of the greatest feats in all of sportsmanship and athleticism, like, period. So there is that. But I mean it's it's ostensibly bragging rights. I mean it's it's not there's no competition. There's uh there's no real money. There there's nothing to say I've got to do this because I want to beat some of there's no rivalry. It's literally man versus nature. And it really explores a lot of that. And I think what makes it interesting is the contrast of his girlfriend, Sani. They, after watching this movie, I was a little, I don't know, I was kind of confused as to where she really fit into it because he's always been kind of a loner and it seemed like almost that she was kind of tapped onto the movie as kind of something to care about, but she's not. She's actually your vehicle 
into the life of Alex. And I think it's a really, really clever move by Elizabeth and Jimmy because without it, it would just be a typical Nat Geo documentary, something that's almost like, oh, well, I could just watch this on the Nat Geo channel or something. But by giving you such a good window into someone who cares about him and wants to be with him, but is at the same time going, oh my God, what the hell is he doing? And tries to take part in it. Um, you are kind of given a real backseat to this and like, oh wow, it really helps you to understand it. Um, I, the only problem for me is I feel that it, the movie tends to kind of meander at points. And I would say probably once, roughly once in the first 20 minutes or so, then again at the 40 minute mark, then again about the hour mark. So probably all in between seven and 10 minutes. It just kind of, kind of drags a bit. Um, but, even then, it's still worth the ride. And especially if you can see this thing in IMAX, holy crap. So I do give this one a 4.5 out of 5, mainly because of the IMAX aspect. Um, but I think it's still well-deserving of its documentary nomination. And the fact that it's just impressive on a global scale to watch it in a human moment. Someone tackle 3,000 feet of fucking granite. Sorry. <laughs> it's just it's it's amazing to watch so 4.5 out of 5 bring us home tim i too saw it in imax and i am super glad <laughs> i did see it in imax because it's legitimate imax i mean they upscaled it so that it actually takes up the whole uh, imax screen at least my entire imax screen was wall-to-wall and floor-to-ceiling of el capitan climbing action. I love Yosemite National Park, even though I never traverse up the side of El Capitan. The very idea that I could if I wanted to is exciting to me. I kind of got giddy watching this movie, and I think the IMAX had something to do with it, because it takes full advantage of the IMAX screen. And then, obviously, when you're sitting in the comfort of a movie theater, there's no relation to what he's going through, but you know if it's a good movie when it feels like you are a part of it. There were moments where it felt like I was a part of his journey. So I think that says a lot. Now, that feeling isn't consistent, but that's okay. And the documentary itself is a very good one, but I did feel like they focused too much on the filming process and the love life of Alex Honoland, the climber, and his girlfriend. So he acquires a girlfriend who knows very well that he's a free solo climber and has dreamed about climbing El Capitan free solo for many years. But the issue in this film is the relationship, the big part of the relationship is that she doesn't want him to do it. And she expects him to not do it. But that doesn't make much sense to me because he's been dreaming of climbing El Capitan free solo for many years. And she thinks that she should come before his obsession. I'd understand if Alex developed this obsession after getting together with his girlfriend, but she came second. <laughs> Besides all that, it's still a very good flick more thrilling than anything else probably due to its subject of both the free soloing and the sheer size of El Capitan. I give it a 4.5 out of 5 as well. Right on, right on. Okay, well then next week's movies are going to be Capernaum, Hale County This Morning, This Evening, Border, and Never Look Away. And with that bit of knowledge, I think we are now ready for the spiel, are we not, sir? Spiel on! Oh, stewardess, I speak jive. Oh, good. 
He said that he's in great pain and he wants to know if you can help him. All right. Would you tell him to just relax and I'll be back as soon as I can with some medicine? Just hang loose, blood. She's gonna catch up on the rebound on the med side. What it is, big mama? My mama didn't raise no dummies. I duck her rap. Cut me some slack, Jack. Chomp the one to help, chomp don't get the help. Say can't hang, say seven up. Jive ass dude don't got no brains in here. Well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast. You can find us at SLScast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLScast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLScast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at NickTwit12345. And, of course, come aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter, if that's your heart's desire. As always, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and our favorite us on Stitcher Radio, as well as track us down on the old SoundCloud and other podcast directories. If you'd like to support the show, please head on over to patreon.com and check us out there and so until next week this is matt saying the thanks to alex honnold i get to say this anytime you finish a climb there's always the next thing you can try take care cinephiles and we'll talk at you again next week madam perhaps we should be going oh very well monsieur thank you so much so nice to see you And I hope very much we will see you again very soon. Au revoir, monsieur. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening.